You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Accounted For, everyone. I hope this is a happy Wednesday for you. If you are listening from Canada or maybe even including the United States and maybe the many other parts in the world, you might be in self-isolation. So I thank you for making the time to give me a piece of your attention during this tough part in our global situation. So I appreciate it. And I just want to put that out there. But yeah, welcome back to Accounted For. This is the podcast that shares and inspires unconventional career journeys. And so I hope with this podcast episode today that I can inspire you one more time. Um, something you might have noticed if you're a long-time listener is that an episode did not go out last week. And if you are a subscriber to my newsletter, then you would know why. And so that's actually further motivation for you to become a subscriber. So go to omdventures.com, subscribe to my newsletter where I talk about all the things that go on in building this media platform slash investment platform over the next 10, 20 years of my life. So that's some filler there um, to get you more into my life. But so one reason why I didn't have an episode is because with COVID-19, a lot of scheduling difficulties emerged. It kind of all happened suddenly. And so that made it really difficult to schedule all my interviews as a lot of them got delayed. But that's also got me thinking about potentially changing Accounted For into a bi-weekly podcast. It's not because I don't want to do these interviews, but it's also because I'm currently working on producing potentially more podcasts, like different ones. And so to create more room for that and to allow everything to be sustainable for me, um, I'm currently exploring the idea of making this a bi-weekly podcast for the foreseeable future. It's also definitely for the COVID-19 period, definitely, because of the difficulty with scheduling guests um, and also the switch over from the model to become a fully remote podcast at, for the time being. So please be aware of that and I appreciate your cooperation. And so for today's conversation, it's a fun one. It's also a timely one. It's a anonymous podcast with a return guest from episode 29, where we spent that episode turning over the rock of working in a hedge fund in Canada. And we went deep into what the buy side industry is like through the guest's lens. And this was a top 10 downloaded episode in 2019. So what better way than to bring on my guest back during a time of market turmoil to see how it's like being an investor at a fund? Turns out my guest already has an anonymous profile in the finance Twitter community that I recently discovered as Moat6Cap, that's my guest's Twitter handle. And so we will go by that name throughout the interview, uh, as you will notice. And you can also check my guest out uh, through that Twitter handle as well as my guest tends to tweet about various interesting investing stuff time and time again. We chat about what it's like being a fund manager during a time when the stock market plummets 30%. We go deeper into what my guest is investing in, interesting companies worth digging into just on a holistic note and just much more about just general investment philosophy it's a conversation that i had a lot of fun in and so we kind of do nerd out a little and it might get a little technical in certain aspects as we talk deeper about company fundamentals and to give you a caveat like 
I would say that my guests and I are kind of on the Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger camp of quote unquote value investing slash intelligent investing as the cult <laughs> likes to call it. But um, I just want to give you that context in the forefront so you're aware of the kind of companies that we're attracted to, the kind of investing style that we are talking about for more context as, as well. But this has this interview can't have come at a perfect close enough time. So I hope this is somewhat educational for you for just understanding more about what a fund manager might be thinking about during this time in the financial markets, but also maybe even thinking about how other people might be investing as well. These are not investment advice, just views of our own. So please tune in and enjoy my conversation with Moat Sixcap. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today is another anonymous podcast with a return anonymous guest from episode 29. The guest is going to go by their uh, Twitter handle known as Moat Sixcap. So I'll I'll just call you Moat for the rest of this interview. Sounds sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah, thanks for coming back, Moat. And so in our previous conversation, we talked about you know a life inside hedge funds, specifically just working in a public equities fund. And this is a pretty great time to talk about all the fun stuff that's going on in the markets and what it's like to be uh you know working in a fund these days. And so let's, I think for some listeners who might not be familiar for context, how this this is for me the first bear market i think i've lived through a couple you know recessions and all that but i think for an as an investor it's been the first one i think the market's gone down what close to 40 percent is that, is that uh, right yeah so in uh if you're looking at mid caps before today lots of the the average s p uh 400 mid cap was down right around 40 percent just under and uh and the s p 500 actually more like uh, 30, like a third, like low thirties. And then, but that's just the broad indice. And then the, the equal weight down much, much more than that. The equal weight, your average name is down more like 40% or mid forties. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and th- that, that changed a lot with the bounce today. So those numbers I gave her as of sort of closed yesterday. And obviously we're up in some cases, you know, five, 6% in other cases up 10, 15 you know, I have a couple of names up 20% right now that are, you know, large cap stocks. <laughs> and uh, uh, so that, that changes the math quite dramatically. But, uh, but yeah, for the most part, uh, call it as of right now, most things are down about a third. Damn. And before we go deeper in for listeners, I think today, like we talked about this just before we recorded, but we're going to talk a bit about what it's like to be, a, you know, be working at a fund during this tumultuous time. And then we'll kind of go into the fun stuff where we're just going to talk about it investing and stocks and our individual portfolios also like for you to be more like your fund and your portfolio but for the listeners this is not an investment advice podcast all the views expressed on investments today are solely our own do not take anything we say as advice for yourself just kind of want to put that disclaimer out there for all kind of legal reasons so let's uh dive in i think from my experience like when when i used to work at more even during the good times, we always have to deal with clients who are just like losing their shit over like five percent declines, or for like small caps, like a ten percent decline. We'd always have to gather in, like, okay, well, what are we going to explain to clients? Tell them like not not to sell, like it's okay, like hold their hand and all that. But during this time, how how is everything? How is everything when you're actually working in a fund? What's what's been the yeah, environment no, like I, right I, now? I mean, it's it's crazy because whether whether I look at personally or or sort of in the fund. Um, you know, 
we on anything longer than a one week time frame, uh, like relatively, we're in the top quartile, if not the top decile performance, you know, one month, year to date, one year, three years, like on any time frame, uh, we're, you know, sort of near the top of the barrel. But, you know, even in markets like now, we see the redemptions coming. It's just crazy. So mm. number one, that tells me that, uh, you know, your average, uh, your average customer or fund holder is just, uh, or, or LP is just, they have no patience for volatility anymore. None. Like no one, no one has any patience for volatility. And the irony of that is, and there's been a lot of work done on this, is that you've had just this mega boom in low ball or no ball or inverse ball strategies. So, you know, two years ago, you saw the inverse VIX ETFs blow up, like that Credit Suisse sponsored ETF blow up. Um, you saw, uh, you saw late uh, 19, you obviously saw, sorry, late 18. You saw December where it felt like we went down every day into Christmas and then we bottomed near Christmas. And that was sort of a, a linear decline or panic. And these were all in the context of prior uptrends that were extremely low vol. So you were climbing up, like literally taking, you know, baby staircase up and then just getting an elevator right down within the span of a month. And here we are, we've done it again, but this time we've done it with such magnitude and such speed that it really is unprecedented in any time like going back 100 years as long as we have listed data uh this is as fast as we've fallen this far um so i guess the point i'm trying to make is the more people it's reflexive it's like the more people see things like this happen the more they can't handle volatility the more they want to try things like real estate venture capital bitcoin weed like you name it i think all these things are byproducts of money coming out of traditional equities and traditional bonds and at the same time as that money comes out there's a greater portion of the existing remaining money is passive that perpetuates the the low ball phenomenon and so it becomes this vicious flywheel of okay there's less active money there's more passive money there's more quantitative money uh there's less people that bet on mean reversion so value investors have obviously gotten their head handed to them and so all these things that used to regulate um, you know, upfall, sort of perpetuated upside volatility and, and regulated downside volatility, all that's gone. So what you have is on the upside, you have almost always now this past cycle, you have less volatility on the up and you have way more volatility on the down. And, and I think that's just a continuation of what we're seeing. So what will be interesting, what I'm watching for is coming out of this one, will that just continue? Will people again say, I can't handle the stock market I can't handle the bond market, but look, my house didn't change in value. The the private equity fund that I got into, that didn't change in value. Um, my private investments didn't change in value. Are they going to go back to that? Or are things like ETFs that are now, you know, some of them are trading at gigantic discounts and at asset value, seeing dislocations in, in even very big, broad ETFs. Are people at BlackRock and Vanguard going to be called in front of Congress and said, look, you're now approaching or near or above 50% market share in sort of listed flow, like what you can buy. So as you go higher from here, you're going to run out of room at a certain point. And then you, the creation and issuance and redemption process of ETFs is going to be linked to a cash underlying that you are, you know, have a monopoly of. Like, is that even fair? Is that ethical? Is that legal? So are we going to get to that point where if the market keeps going down, Will that will those conversations be had the way they were had 
at the financial crisis where you had the mortgage-backed security industry sort of changed. You had the investment banking regulations come in. You had all these changes that stopped the flywheel from going down and also from going up. Whereas here, if we don't change the regulation or we don't rethink that stuff, I think you're just going to continue to see these boom-bust cycles get bigger and shorter, meaning we'll, you know, V out of this one and then we'll have another crash next year or the year after. Like, they're just going to keep happening until we realize this is a feature not a you know not a not an esoteric you know corona only thing i think covid was probably the 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 catalyst but the underlying issue in financial markets is more around this aversion to volatility and the 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 issues that that's creating sorry i ranted for a bit there but that that really is i think the key thing right now is are we going to change that paradigm or is that just going to continue to get worse and worse Mm -hmm. no i think it's it's you bring up a, a lot of valid points where i think in the last you know five five years or so since i've been getting involved in the investing world we hear all the time people go on you know all these talk shows and they talk about how oh the the crash is going to come next year crash is going to come next year and they have all these reasons they have you know the explosion of passive investing all these tech valuations leverage and people just throw in china or like kyle bass talks about currency all the time Mm -hmm. and then china and Everyone's trying to predict it, but it it's like, you know, we've, we all know that crash is coming. None of us can really actually predict it. And yeah. who, who expected? No, I don't think I've seen a single interview where someone said, oh, a pandemic is going to cause it. And no, yeah. yeah, and this was a catalyst. But I think, like you said, all the other issues that we see from before are kind of leading into this domino effect of things just falling down. And I think today we're recording, you know, March 24th, 2020. We're seeing a bit of a rally this this morning, although yeah. I think, uh, you know, a part of me, like the, I think the animal part of me, like the lizard brain is kind of more like, ooh, exciting. Should I, you know, is it is it going to go up? But I think the rational part of me is thinking, no, it's, I don't know why. I think people are just getting a little hyped up with this potential new bailout deal maybe getting signed, but yeah. I just feel it's going to be a longer term thing. I'm I'm curious, like, how are you and your folks at the fund, like thinking about it? Yeah, I think the the one thing I've tried to do, which, you know, knock on wood, uh, we've done pretty well is, is, um, is try not to get too extreme about anything. So there's a couple, there's a couple indicators I'm watching. And the one thing I'm not doing is sort of watching the news too much. I mean, just like anyone from a humanitarian perspective, like I care about COVID, I care about the cases, I care about what happens in Italy and New York, the numbers are really scary, but I'm not making any investment decisions based on that. Like the things I'm most focused on are um, sort of three things. You've seen uh, tech continue every day, every week, every month, every year for the past almost five years now, maybe even longer. Tech has really been the one area that in terms of producing alpha has been the most reliable, consistent producing alpha producing sector in any market in the world, uh, but particularly in the U.S., so I've been watching how tech trades every day. That's sort of been one thing I, I'm always curious about. Another has been, you know, large caps of just just demolished small caps. And that's also, there's two things behind that. One is a lot of the large mega caps are tech companies. So that's number one. But number two is the small caps, you know, have obviously has energy and materials and all these other things have gotten trashed. They've all fallen into small cap. So a lot of equal weight underperforming large cap or, or equal weight underperforming market cap driven indices 
a lot of that is just a reflection of value versus growth or value versus tech or energy versus tech. So they're all kind of the same thing, but all of that seems like one trade to me. If you have been long, large cap, growthy tech, any time in the past five year, five years, you've done extremely well. If you've been long anything else, it's been a challenge. And if you've been, especially if you've been long small cap, you know, resource, uh, non-US, like that's just obviously you've already lost your whole track record, right? So I mean, your funds blown up one, at that point, right? You're, you're already blown up. You've already <laughs> been, you know, you've already been tapped on the shoulder. You're done. But I think, I think for me, it's number one. Okay. Until we see that change, why would I, there's people that every year, every month want to be the hero. Okay. Here's where small caps bottom. Here's where REITs bottom. Here's where energy bottoms. It's like, I'm not going to ever be able to call a bottom. So there is a, a technical or, a, you know, at least a quantitative element to what I've started doing, which is listening. Okay. We're in a market right now that's heavily dominated by passive flows. I understand the phenomenon. I've seen the data for me to make it to the other side where I think ultimately active management will come back. There will be a role for stock picking, but until that day comes, I have to play the machine game better than the machines. So the way to do that is say, okay, who's attracting flow right now? looking at the indexes is very quantitative and that's become a bigger part of my process than I would like to admit, but I've been doing a lot of that. That served me well, but on the flip side right now, like you asked, what do you do right now? I think on the margin, I talked about not being extreme about anything. So if I could be all in on Microsoft or all in on Apple for the past couple of years, certainly even in this drawdown, that's been a great move. If, like, if you were adding to Microsoft, even well, it's only down 20% and the market's down 30, like that's 10 points of alpha. If you were 2% in Microsoft, 4%, 6%, the greater your weight, the greater your alpha you got just from that one key insight. I don't need to know anything about the company. I just know that that's the last name that active and passive will come for. Cause on the marginal dollar that does go into the market, it's going into Microsoft. So, so I have been trying to think about how do I monetize and migrate the alpha I have generated in those names and those large cap winners, and how quickly do I move that into some smaller cap names where the valuations have just gotten so extreme. Um, like uh, people on Twitter know that I generally like first service, um, but first service uh, has actually held in reasonably well, but the, the sort of sister company at first service that it actually got spun out of Collier's is trading at a ridiculously cheap valuation it's trading like it has bankruptcy risk and it has no bankruptcy risk it's got you know less than a turn off of debt net debt on the balance sheet um and uh, it's a cash flow business there's no capex and uh and it's a global business it's a global number three in its industry it's a growing industry it's real estate they've been moving more recurring revenue been moving more to a brookfield like buy side versus just south side model um they're doing and saying everything right but the market just right now doesn't care like you are too small, you have too much operating leverage, see you later, you're done. So that's kind of, okay, do I run out and make that my top pick or no? But do I go from not owning any to owning 10 beeps, 50 beeps, 100 beeps? So those are the kind of moves I've been trying to make, but it's not, it's all about this incrementalism. I'm not going to call the bottom, I'm not going to be here and say, here's where it happens. But I am going to say that's where my incremental dollar has to go from here on out. We're, we're at a point where the valuations are so compelling, even if I'm a month early or three months early, I'll still be happy with where I bought this six months out, a year out, two years out. So those are the kind of things I've been thinking about doing. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, 
I think I'm definitely in agreement with you there. Like, there's so many Buffett quotes where he's like, if you, if you like it at 100, you should love it at 80. Like, because if you have the strategy of I'm going to own this wonderful business for the next 5, 10, 20 years, then like the market's kind of doing you a favor that way. And Mr. Mark is being irrational. So, yeah, exactly. And I think he, I think he would tell you that, like, if you like it at 100, you like it better at 80. The, the obvious sort of asterisk you need to have is, is liquidity yeah like if you don't have liquidity you're not able to take advantage of the the opportunity that's number one if the company doesn't have liquidity it doesn't have the luxury of surviving this because this will have like a gigantic economic impact there are a lot of retailers are going to go out of business a lot of service-based companies are going to go out of business a lot of distributors with the wrong working capital dynamic they might have no debt but if there's no, you know, if they're, if they didn't go into this with any spare inventory and they're going to run off all their inventory and they're toast, they're going to be done. Right. So, um, they're not gonna be able to pay their bills. If you have the law, the wrong receivables to payables ratio, you're going to be done. So it, it really is like, okay, we went through a three to five year period of no one really talking about balance sheets, no one talking about cash flow statements. So if there's one thing I feel very confident about is that over the next year or two, there's going to be a lot more conversation about balance sheets, way more than that has happened in, in maybe 10 years. And that's going to be great for companies that have good balance sheets. And it's going to be terrible for companies that don't. And any one day rally or one week rally in the market, I don't think will change that because what you're seeing in the bond market is a regime change. Like a lot of these spreads blowing out um, a lot of what the feds done, like we've hit the lower bound spreads are blowing out. There was that crater of debt issued at the, at the investment grade line at the, uh, uh, triple B. So yeah, like all those things cascading at the same time, even outside of the energy sector, that seems like a regime change to me. So I think if you know, if, if you like something at hundred and it's at 80, but you're not a hundred percent confident in the liquidity of the business, I, I will never, I've learned my lesson on those, you know, 10 years ago, mm. that's the easiest way to make a permanent loss of capital. Liked it at a hundred, you know, like it at 80, like it at 60, but the balance sheet just keeps getting worse and worse. They don't pat, patch it up. And then you're sitting there. Next thing you know, you've got a distressed debt situation and and you're stuck with all this legacy bias of, oh, I first bought the stock at 100. It's at 30 now. There's no way I can sell it. Well, you know what? 30 can go to zero. So uh, that, so anyways, I'm ranting again. But the, the, the main thing right now, I think, is as long as I'm comfortable in the liquidity of the businesses I own, then I agree with you on, you know, buying a, you buy the dip. I, I agree with that. Yeah, no, I, I think you bring up a very important point. Like the, the story that comes to my mind is when, I don't, I don't know if you followed it, when Bill Miller was uh, doubling down on Bear Stearns back when in yeah. 08 saying, oh no, like I, I love it now. And he kept on doubling, doubling down on the stock and then it eventually went bankrupt and that he just wiped yeah. out his 15 year track record. And Well, and he's an amazing <laughs> example too, right? Because he's a, like, I think I've been spending a lot of time sort of thinking about the market in terms of, of volatility, because yeah. I do think that's the primary difference between this market and the market 10 years ago or even 20 years ago. And Bill Miller was your classic, um, your classic volatility seller. Like when things are, when, when puts are expensive and volatility is high and the VIX is high and on your individual name and things are blowing up and whatever. He's out there. He's the one selling the insurance. Here you go. You, you want that protection? Sold to you. And nine times out of 10, that works. And that's why when people think, oh, Bill Miller had this epic track record. He went, whatever it was, 15 in a, years in a row beating the market. Of course he went 15. Like, if I had the same strategy as him, I, I would go 15 years in a row beating the market too. 
but it's a strategy that works until it doesn't, right? Selling volatility always works until it doesn't. And so it's, you're right nine times out of 10, but the one time you're wrong, you go to zero. Yeah. As opposed to there's other investors. And I follow this one guy on Twitter. Uh, his name is Ben Eifert. And uh, he manages uh, long volatility strategies, which is a very rare part of the market. Like not rare as in not a lot of people do it. There's another guy, Christopher Cole, who's written a lot about this. So I've been reading a lot of these guys. They generally lose money almost all the time, right? Long volatility strategies, you're losing one to two to 3% a year, every single year. And then a year like this happens this month and they're up 50X, you know, they're up 10, 20, 30, 50X on their entire book. And so they've had to make all their money in one shot. And that's also not great. Like between Bill Miller and that, I would still take Bill Miller any day because if you can give me 15 years of doing better than the market and any one of those years might be, you know, a nuclear bomb that takes me out. Yeah. It's an unsettling to think about it that way, but I'd still rather that than these guys were, okay, you're going to lose guaranteed for the next 15 years. But after that one year, you don't know which year that's also going to make you back and then hopefully some. So I've been trying to think about what companies, you know, within the market have asymmetric volatility skew, meaning what companies, and, and this is sort of the Manish Pabrai mentality, but from the opposite perspective, like Manish Pabrai thinks about, you know, heads I win, tails I don't lose much, but in reality, he invests in a lot of deep value stocks, which are, they can go to zero and lose a lot, but they can also 10 bag. So I think Manish Pabrai, when he speaks, he speaks about tails I don't lose much, heads I win a lot, but in practice, he's heads I win a lot, tails I lose a lot. Whereas I'm looking for companies that are truly tails, I don't lose much, and that's probably because they're non-cyclical, they have good balance sheets, they have great management teams, and the valuations are reasonable. So, you know, again, I gave an example of like Collier's or something like that, or First Service is another one I like, or Constellation Software is another one I've been sitting for a long time. In a truly awful economy, in a truly awful environment, they tend to do better, not worse than, than your average company. But if things do well, it doesn't really change the calculus for them. They still do just as well, if not a little bit better. And again, it comes back to the balance sheet, comes back to the cash flow. And then if you put a reasonable valuation, it's all simple blocking and tackling. But there are companies where, whether it's a management quirk or a business quirk, they tend to outperform on the downside and outperform on the upside. And those are very rare. So one example I would think of is like um, the exchanges right now. I don't know if you've looked at like a, a Chicago Mercantile Exchange, yeah. ICE, yeah, ICE, CME, CME. ICE, Market Access. So everyone is on to them now, but in past cycles, you could see they didn't actually go down nearly as much when the market went down, yet they still took about 80, 90% of the upside. So you're only getting, like, in, I measure this through uh, bull beta and bear beta, which you can get on Bloomberg, but you can also run regressions yourself using free data. Just go look at, on weeks when the market's up and regress those, what did the stock do? And on weeks when the market's down, what did the stock do? And so that upside downside capture. And for most things, yeah, if the upside capture is 1.1, the downside capture is 1.1. You don't find any symmetry. But you do find these ones like these exchanges where the upside capture, 80, 90%. They're basically like the market, beta 0.8, 0.9. The downside capture is like 20%. It's like a gold stock. So, and then you go ask the companies, why is that? Okay, obviously, when things are more volatile, people are trading more, blah, blah, blah. So that's a benefit to our business. So I think those things in the context of the market 
if you can get an ice trading at a market multiple and the management's exceptional and whatever, that's kind of like free or even cheaper free optionality in the market that is almost always underpriced because people view it as a traditional stock when really what it is is a stock plus a free option spread on it, Mm -hmm. uh, which lowers your volatility at no cost. Because usually to lower your vol, you have to go out there and make a bet that can eventually hurt you one day. Whereas with these stocks, you're lowering your volatility, but you're not putting up that same catastrophe risk. You can't blow up with these things, generally speaking. So Chicago Mercantile Exchange, CME has been around for over 100 years. So that's why I kind of like, they have that volatility limiting feature, but they're not going to blow you up. So that's asymmetric. And that's kind of like something I think has a, has a place in anyone's portfolio. Mm-hmm. And the, I think the, the famous saying is, give me recurring revenue or give me death. I think there's a yeah, saying exactly. like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and they don't even have recurring revenue. Like ICE has, uh, they went out and bought uh, that data business a few years ago. Like they mm-hmm. do have a growing data portion of the business. But uh, the Merck CME is almost 100% uh, pure play futures. Like they're just like a gigantic casino for, for corporate and you know, commercial hedgers. So I kind of like that. Like if we were, 500 years ago and there was a physical market of people, farmers trading corn or whatever, you know, that market would have probably been the best thing to invest in even 500 years ago. And that would have been the CME of the day. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I I do like the whole idea of buying, buying the clearing houses, buying the, the, the people that are the network providers of liquidity to people in times of panic. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's kind of like what Buffett does, but it's, it's more profitable in all markets than just your average business model. Yeah. And on, on the topic of, I think, liquidity, it's a good segue into, like, I think some of your tweets, like you also tweeted about uh, CIBC and Manulife looking extra juicy with the uh, dividend yields. And I think if anyone yeah. looks at the Canadian banks, like, yeah, like they, a lot of them just all look straight juicy. But I think it, for me, my initial thoughts, okay, well, then it kind of got me thinking about the the balance sheet and do I really want all this kind of, potential downside of the debts kind of defaulting and just all, all the loans that are just on this balance sheet itself compared to like a business that just has a very clean healthy balance sheet low debt a lot of cash and the ability to just have you know a pretty sturdy business that just won't be too affected by downturns and so then that got me like compiling this massive list even then the list is pretty big given the valuations now like we got pretty interesting large caps like mastercard and moody's like even the rating like rating agencies, they they're down yeah. to like pretty juicy valuations, like not cheap, but for the business itself, it's like hmm, very tasty there. Yeah, I, I I agree with what you're saying in general. I just wanted to jump in on the rating agencies specifically because I have talked to a lot of people and seen a lot of people that are that didn't used to like these businesses. Like yeah. I remember uh, five plus years ago, you know, really wanted to buy McGraw Hill Financial. Saw you know they have this great set of businesses. No one knew anything about these things. And then the past couple of years, they've gone from no one knew anything about them to, okay, people knew about them, but they traded cheap because, you know, issuance is volatile and it's not really this recurring business. To then, as of last year, people were obsessed with this business, right? They have the, they have Plots, which is a great business. They have uh, the index business, which is a good, a great business. And then they have the ratings, which is a good business, but everything else is also too. And the management's good, blah, blah, blah. So there was this epic run that both uh, Moody's and uh, S&P went on. But I've been surprised at how well S&P's held in in this downdraft because you truly are in like a bond market Armageddon right now. 
And for whatever happens in the stock market, it's, you know, I, I love the stock market. It's what I do in every day. And it's what I've loved since I was a kid. But, but really the bond market is, is what dictates the economy, not the stock market. So the bond market is not behaving healthy at all in terms of liquidity, in terms of the trading and the spreads, um, like the trading spreads as opposed to just the, the issuance spreads. And there's no issuance activity. And all of that's going to come home to roost for the ratings guys in a non-linear way. Like it might seem like it'll be really bad now. And then they'll tell you the rest of the year, okay, people can't defer these refinancings, you know, 40, 50% of our stuff or 60% is, is uh, refinancing. So that's not a new issuance. That's got to come no matter what. It's like, okay, but for the ones that are going bankrupt or the ones that are refining at way higher spreads, that's going to lower the dollar value and it's going to lower how you guys are going to get paid on how frequently or the size of the, the, the deals. So, um, yeah, I think they could be in a lot of trouble as opposed to, to your point, you mentioned like a, a MasterCard. It's like, well, the payments guys are different because any growth in the economy, if and when it comes back, they will get it. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're just, they're everywhere. They're going to get it. And this wiping out of cash, like we have a lot of industries that were like hanging on for dear life, even before this, like retail, airlines cruise lines uh you know department stores all of these were hanging on for dear life and then this happens it's like okay you're toast so i think it's actually a good thing because it'll wash out all the weak hands and then all the new businesses that come to take that share whether they're the big guys or new players are going to be better run they're going to learn from those mistakes and be better run and that's only going to be better for mastercard because then you're going to have all this pent-up demand and so all the payments guys are kind of going to come out of this on fire i think as opposed to the ratings guys you could see a permanent or you know you know a couple year you know sort of hit to the bond market really level set leverage and how people think about balance sheets and that would be incrementally negative for them. Mm-hmm. no and you bring up excellent points there and i think that's what's also got me thinking about like there's a lot of talk lately also about you know i think in the fintweet community people talk about reads how like the yields look juicy the cap rates look juicy but at the same time i feel like you still really got to dig into the portfolio there because a lot of like the retail side of the portfolio could be very like dangerous and dicey on that front too. Where it's, oh, like, for sure. Like, are they really going to be there as a business? Like what percentage oh, are sure. you exposed in? Like even, even I think yeah. people think residential real estate is like really safe, but I don't know. Like, is it? Um, I think there's a lot of questions. No, I agree question there too. Like, I've, I've been, I've been invested in residential real estate, both, you know, obviously personally and, and in the fund and, and, uh, I'm pretty, you know, pretty confident in, in what I do on there. But there is, like, relative to any other sector where we talked about liquidity balance sheet, that sort of stuff, like, no other sector has the same level of reflexivity as the REITs do. And what I mean by that is if you actually go read uh, Soros, The Alchemy of Finance, which yeah. is a very dry book, but he has a whole chapter dedicated to REITs. And I remember reading it and he has like sort of these grandiose, you know, chapters in his book where he talks about big philosophical ideas, but then really when he talks about REITs, he makes it quite practical. So I always refer back to that chapter and he sort of talks about, look, there's been cycles in the past, whether it's, you know, the eighties, the seventies, the nineties, they weren't always called REITs. They've been different income vehicles, but these income vehicles where you're forced to pay out X percent to have a tax advantage, or even in the conglomerate boom in the eighties where, companies were buying up other companies and it was just a you know C of M and A. Whenever that happens, you have this dynamic where the liquidity isn't driven by your own cash flow, it's driven by the capital markets. 
So when capital markets are easy, you have to perform the market. When capital markets are shut, you almost always underperform the market. And so that's why I actually kind of find REITs and other, you know, less liquid, you know, more reliant on capital markets instruments very interesting is because it's they're very binary. Like if if things are good, they're great. If things are bad, they're terrible. And if you look at the past 10 years of performance, 15, 20 years of performance uh, before this sell-off, all of them on a risk-adjusted basis, total return basis, including dividends, all you know those those defensive dividend structures like the REITs and the UTEs, they were all doing actually better on a risk basis than than just your average stock or your average index. But in this downturn, they were hanging on, hanging on, hanging on, and then a couple of weeks ago, just the floor fell out from them, both in Canada and the U.S. You just saw indiscriminate selling yeah. uh, from people I was talking to. There was a lot of hedge fund liquidation in Canada and in the REITs that was making it pretty indiscriminate. So normally when you see indiscriminate selling, I'd want to be a buyer. But the question is, okay, they were indiscriminately sold. Who's now the incremental buyer? And so if I look at the active community, there's no appetite for REITs because people are like, okay, you know, these things are torched. They're generally very small. You know, they pay these yields they can't sustain anymore. And they basically have to do equity issuance to grow, to buy buy assets, to consolidate, to whatever. And the equity markets are close to them. So what you often see with REITs is these, these cycles of the good ones grow, 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 grow. They outperform the market for extenuated, ex- extended periods of time. They have these very smooth, low volatility, high momentum moves over multiple years. And then when they crack, they go down and then they can stay dead for years. There's a whole sea, a long tail in Canada and the U.S. of REITs that once they lose momentum, they go sideways or down for you know upwards of five years. So my worry is you might be dip buying these and they might jump back, but then they're they're not going to do anything for the next five years because they've lost their cost of capital. So back to the companies we were talking about before, like Colliers, they don't need my money. They don't need capital markets to be open. Whether if the stock market closed for five years, to use that analogy, they would grow their earnings per share just as fast. Whereas if the stock market's closed for five years, REITs are done. You know, a lot of them are done, right? So, or they're cutting their dividend to zero, they're liquidating, but they're not doing what REITs are supposed to do. So that's kind of, that was a good, I think, you know, little microcosm of how to think about this market is right now, who whose balance sheet, whose cost of capital is the most solid, who needs capital, who doesn't. Because if you need capital, that changes the calculus in a way where the opportunities are bigger. Like if you get it right, you're going to make fortunes. But if you get it wrong, you're going to zero. And that's not kind of the game I want to play. As I sort of mentioned, like the game I want to play is a little more incremental, a little more nuanced than that. No, yeah, absolutely. And I think this, the opportunity like you talk about where it's like, yeah, like in, in, in my purview, also more so my strategy is, yeah, like who doesn't need capital? Who also has ample capital? And I think, you know, you you and I, we're both happy shareholders of Constellation and we're big fans of Mark Leonard and the kind of beautiful balance sheet that they tend to have with the high yes. cash flow business. And I think the other people, I think that at least the value investing community are kind of looking towards, obviously, this Buffett where everyone's like, oh, look at his cash pile up and we'll see what he does with it. And he might be licking his chops. But at the same time, there's also our good old Canadian boys like Bruce Flat sent out a shareholder letter with saying yeah, that, we, that we got 16 what, 15 or 16 billion dollars ready to deploy and so there's those yeah they guys. raised they raised <laughs> uh, like they, they they've only i think he said they've only deployed 60 percent and uh they obviously raised like 20 billion just recently it's like i mean 
whether it's luck or skill with those guys, it doesn't matter. They, yeah. they get it. They get, they get both. And both is, both is great. Right. Well, if you can be lucky or skilled, you know, you'd rather be lucky, but if you can be both, that's just perfect. That's even better. And so, yeah, I think yeah, that's even better. Brookfield asset management is definitely a very interesting play right now as well. Just given, I think the long-term opportunity set. And I think on a smaller scale, I've been digging, a, starting to dig a little into like more guard to see, what would Ray Sahi do or Ray Sahi do? Like, does he have yeah. the capability of doing all that? And so those are things I'm looking into, but I'm curious, like what, what are you looking into these days? Like for maybe yeah, so your I, personal you as well as your, yeah. I've been a Morgard shareholder since uh, like 2013. Oh, wow. Um, and basically I haven't touched a share uh, since then. Uh, been almost solely because you can't really, it doesn't, <laughs> it, it, tra- it trades like by appointment, right? Like it's just not a, it's the, one of the least liquid uh, companies in, in Canada, but but in terms of MRC, but he's an interesting guy because he there's a lot of people like generally speaking for the fund. I'm looking for the opposite of Ray. I'm looking for people that really care about the stock price, and mm. I, a lot of people, a lot of active investors. For I don't know why it happened. I think it happened because of this respect for Buffett and this respect for you know patience and and not looking at the stock price because. A lot of people I talk to, it's like, oh, if you meet with a management team and they want to talk about the stock price, for me, even a few years ago, they used to be a big turnoff. If I meet with a management team, they want to talk about the stock price, they want to talk about analysts, they want to talk about, you know, how people view their company. That to me was a big negative because I wanted companies that didn't care about that. You know, just put your head down, grow no matter what. You know, it doesn't matter where the stock is, the stock will affect intrinsic value over time. But... I've actually come full circle on that. And I now actually prefer companies where I walk into a management meeting and we can sit and talk about the stock for a half hour. And that's because it shows me that in this age of, you know, again, like that passive investment, protecting the quote, that does show up in a lot of factors that, that matter in the market. So are you beating and raising your numbers? Are you meeting expectations or, or missing expectations? Are you setting expectations that are, you know, for an ambitious five-year plan that doesn't, isn't able to impact the quote today, or are you setting, you know, conservative one-year guidance that, you know, every year that guy's just going to incrementally be, you know, moved up a tiny bit, a tiny bit. So Roper is an excellent example of a company that uh, I've talked about on Twitter. I know a lot of other Twitter guys like it. And they do that game excellently, right? They sort of talk about a very achievable organic growth guidance. They don't put M&A into the guide. They sort of are, Insistent with analysts on not putting M and A into the guidance because they do multi transactions, and then they have a very clear messaging around CRI, and they keep people trained in on this metric and it matters to them, and they've sort of proven out empirically how it works and how it drives value, and so what you get this this great dynamic of people that believe become loyal shareholders, and then as you show me the carrot moving higher, I'm gonna buy more and more stock, whereas for people that don't believe and are cynics, okay, it's sold to me. But it creates this churn of, okay, I have to convince more and more people for the stock to keep going. And so what you have is you look at a, at a Roper and it's one of the only companies that over extended periods of time, like 15, 20 years, 25 years, can consistently outperform the market on the most consistent basis. And I think it's because they've sort of managed that shareholder narrative metagame better than almost anyone else. Mm. And I would contrast that with with obviously like a Buffett, right? Like Buffett created a lot of value in BRK, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, but he hasn't really created any value in it in 10, 15 years. Now you could argue that 
that's size, it's a lot of different things. But I think more so than anything else is he he never really had to play in an arena where it's so competitive for for investor capital that you need to manage expectations and manage the narrative better than others in order to attract capital. And it's also because he doesn't care, right? Once you're the second richest guy in the world, why do you care? But for me, I'm not the richest person in the world, so I, I care about those things, right? If I ever get to the point where you know I'm I'm uh, richest person in North America, then then yeah, then I then I won't care. But for the time being, I, I have sort of gravitated to these companies that you know I can sit down with management. I understand that they're very thoughtful about the stock. They're thoughtful about their cost of capital, just as much as being thoughtful about operations or employees or margins or growth. They're also considerate of investors because you'd be shocked how many management teams are just not considerate of investors. Like companies that have leverage, that issue equity, that want your money every year or every few years, they need your money. Yet when you come into a meeting, they put out, oh, we're going to grow 20% this year, or we're going to grow 15% category over the next five years. It's like, guys, how do you know that? You can't know <laughs> that. Like, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone five years from now. So that sort of fake confidence in a long-term vision, you know, we're long-term patient capital, whatever, like, ultimately when the rubber hits the road a lot of those people don't survive and it's because they haven't managed expectations they haven't lived through a down cycle they don't know how to under promise over deliver manage costs that kind of thing so a lot of the companies i'm most attracted to are the companies that play that game play it well but then also run a very good business it's the it's the marriage between those two things mm-hmm. Do you mind uh, riffing off like five to ten names that currently are top of mind, like that you're looking at or digging deeper into, or like the ones that you're adding to? Like we mentioned, Collier's yeah. first service. Um, are you? Yeah, those are ones. The 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 other one uh, that I've talked about on Twitter that uh, did a terrible job of this, and I've lost a ton of money on is Wayfair. Oh. And what I think is interesting <laughs> is, oh, and I still and I still own it. I mean, oh it's, man, it's, you do. It's, oh, it shrunk. It shrunk to a tiny percent. Uh, of my holdings but uh but uh, you know i'll leave it where it is because it's 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 honestly it doesn't hurt me anymore it's tiny i've already lost the money's been lost and what i like is i've been reading nasim uh Talib, the uh book anti-fragile, anti-fragile. Nice. i hadn't read i hadn't read any of his stuff before but i've been using this sort of uh work from home environment to sort of read some books and nice. whatever and so i've been reading that one and wayfair seems to me like one if they can survive this crisis I think they will come out as an exceptional business. Mm. Obviously, there's the you know very likely chance that they don't survive, but let's say they do. I think it could be a home run because it's it's at the intersection of all the secular trends you want to play in terms of e-commerce, millennials, you know, home starts, all that stuff. But yeah, they are one that back to that expectations game, back to being realistic about the stock, managing the narrative. You know, they lost sight of all that. I think they. They got very, you know, they got in their own heads. They got egotistical. I read lots of articles in the Boston, I think it's the Boston Globe or the Boston Journal, the main the main newspaper in Boston that sort of covers stories on them. But they're basically hiring people like crazy, never wanted to cut a person, never wanted to cut costs. And if you think back to Amazon in the late 90s or read back old posts on that, Amazon has always been a very cheap, very frugal culture. And if the Wayfair to Amazon comparison is going to hold the missing link by far is that frugality and i knew that even when i invested in it but i think 
going from here, which is obviously off a much lower base, if they can fix that and make the link missing link, you know, more direct, then I think, yeah, this could have an Amazon like run because it's got all the same tailwinds. It just has to execute. And usually what we see in Canada more so than the U S but also in the U S is that it takes a crisis to catalyze a change of behavior. People aren't going to change behavior willingly if things are going well. So when you have these, you know, near death experiences, when you come out of them, the companies that got the closest to dying often become not just because of valuation, but more so because of change of thinking. If they can change their thinking, they become a great, great investment as opposed to something like uh, in Canada right now, I know I've, I uh, battled with someone on um, on Twitter recently about uh, uh, CCL, um, um, CCLB. Yeah, yeah, CCLB. And my 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 issue with that one is that's a management team in a business that refuses to change their thinking has become very stagnant. And so even if the the stock gets cheaper, even if the business changes, I'm not attracted to it because I don't think they're going to have a crisis that will change behavior. So you can have a situation where the stock underperforms or is an average performer for three, five years because they don't, they don't change anything. So that my, my bigger fear is, is with companies is that I buy something that has a very stale thesis. I'm buying, I'm buying value creation or a track record that was good 10 years ago. Yeah. Like my biggest worry with things is where someone's like, Oh, the 10 year average ROE is 40%. Like those scare the crap out of me because, okay, that's great. It's a compound or whatever. But I don't get to make any of those returns. The returns I make are tomorrow and the day after and the day after. So are they a dynamic management team that can change? Are they someone that is constantly innovating or trying to get ahead of competitors? And when I look at something like a CCLB, I don't get any of that. Mm-hmm. No, that's a, that's a good point. And I think one company that comes to my mind is like Constellation. Like Constellation has these amazing you know, return on invested capitals. But I think for me, like there's, I do have trust in the management team where Mark Lynch has built this vehicle where he just happens to build out, you know, VMS businesses. Like he buys out VMS businesses, but he doesn't have to. Like it's just, he doesn't, he's not tied to software, but he can choose to like just completely pivot into, oh, we found this completely different niche industry that we can now deploy like our system into. And so I have complete trust that he'll be able to identify those and his team will be able to identify those. But for some companies, I I agree with you. Like I, I actually wanted to talk about that because I was just talking on Twitter uh, with some people about Tyler Technologies. Oh, Tyler. So I, I, I talked about Roper, uh, Constellation, and Tyler. And so I own two of those three. I don't own Tyler. And what's interesting is it's exactly what you just said. It's it's They don't have to be doing software. If I look at Roper, obviously it was an industrial business. It's now doing software. I think about Constellation, it's always done VMS. Um, but it doesn't have to always do vertical market software. It could do... Like he's even talked about looking outside of software if he could find the returns. Yeah. So Roper, as long as the CRI is there, I'm doing it. Uh, Constellation, as long as I'm driving higher ROIC and free cash flow per share, I'm doing it. Tyler, they have a they have a playbook. They they focus on organic growth. They focus on margins. They're very responsible capital allocators. So I don't want to say it's a bad company or bad stock. It's definitely in the top ten percent of all companies out there. But relative to the other two, if and when things changed in the municipal uh, judicial systems, they didn't need their software. If it changed in certain of the government, you know, public market softwares that didn't need them or there was more competitive pressure or let's say the next workday, the next sales force is going to come out and directly target what Tyler does. 
And are they going to have a response to that? Are they going to pivot? And so some of the best companies, and I'll mention another one, uh, like you said, give five, 10 names. Another one would be like a Danaher. Danaher has changed like 10 times, right? Danaher, you go back 20 years ago, wasn't doing any of the things it's doing today. Then it goes by, it buys GE. Everyone thinks that move is crazy. So it's moving almost solely to life science. You know, it got out of dental when that market turned. Uh, it got out of small industrial instrumentation in Fortive when that turned. It got out of all the things that they put into Fortive. So that's an extremely, you know, they own the water business. If that water business changes uh, dramatically, I'm sure they'll get out of that. Like they're just dynamic. So when you're making a decision about a company, you know, you used to have to think, you know, can I hold this for the next five years and will I be better off? Now you almost have to think, for the next year, I have no idea what's going to happen. Going into 2020, going into 2021, I have no idea what's going to happen. But I know that the Danaher guys are smarter than average and they'll make better than average decisions. Whereas the CCLB, I don't believe they're smarter than average. And if something comes at them, are they going to be lucky or unlucky? No idea. Yeah. But with Danaher, you put luck on your side when you, when you embrace change. It said differently, I think. Yeah, and I think on, on that note, like we're, when we're actually focusing on the management, two names that recently popped into my own um, to dig into list has been IAC and uh, Fairfax India. Have you had a okay. chance to look into any of those? Or uh, No, I don't know them very well at all. Yeah. I can't speak to... I know uh, it's Brad... Uh, sorry, it's... Uh, Diller. What's his name? Diller. Yeah. yeah at, uh, and, then, uh, and he's created a lot of value. And then I, I would be more inclined to look at in my personal opinion that one or, or any of the ones under his sphere because i know there's all there's other you know companies i know the match group yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of guys that like match and those things to me are kind of more dynamic and more interesting the fairfax india is interesting but i i struggle with prem i find prem to be a bit uh he's a traditionalist yeah which is good right like he sticks to his values he whatever but the world we're in right now is so dynamic that I think a lot of these old value investors, they're going to have their moment and I think they're going to have it very soon. But from there, you know, five years from now, do I feel good with those guys? Probably not, right? Because the world's going to change again. Like if there's this great rotation back into value, you know, these cheap companies that they're buying and start working well, India comes back, emerging market growth, et cetera. That might go on for a year, two, three, even five years. And then five years from now, 10 years from now, whenever the change comes, are they going to pivot? Are they going to, I just don't have that confidence, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas again, back to a Danaher, when things pivot, they pivot. When time, when the thesis changes, they change. And they don't let their ego get in the way of making the right decision, which is also how I want to trade. Like when I buy something on Monday and it, on Tuesday, new information comes out, if that information nulls my thesis, even if the stock's down 10%, I'm a seller. And same thing on the up. If I buy a company thinking it's, you know, it's run rate terminal value growth could be 6%, and then they buy something that moves that terminal value growth up to 9% and they do it accretively and the stock is 20% higher. Well, if they created more than 20% value in the terminal value by doing that accretive deal, you know, I'll buy it up 20%. So I think Danaher is more similar to my style in that yeah. sense than like a, than a prem is. Prem yeah. is obviously, I want things that four times or back to the CCL, like they only want to pay five times EBITDA. You know, if the world changes and there's none of those deals around, you're not doing deals. And if the world changes and those deals are available, but they're of worse quality, do you still want them? And they're, they're, it's rigid thinking versus flexible thinking. And I used to 
I used to be very rigid and I used to like investing with people who were also rigid. And now I'm much more flexible and I like investing with people who are flexible. Yeah, no, I, I think it's the John Maynard Keynes quote of when the facts change, you got to change your mind. And yeah, yeah I think that's, it's, it's a lesson I'm continuously trying to ingrain in myself over time through different facets, like whether it's in life, career, and also like investing. But yeah, it's definitely a learning process for for sure, and I think for sure, yeah, like it's 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 one of those things. Like even when I look for management, too, like I I want to find companies where they have the ability to disrupt themselves internally before being like disrupt, forced to be disrupted. And I think you bring up an ex- extremely valid point of you know the management that is actually flexible. Like in one way, people think rigid is good because it seems like it's systematic, but the truly systematic ones are actually extremely flexible. They build a very flexible system so they can yep. continuously pivot and pivot and pivot when they need to. Um, Absolutely. I, I think, and it's, it's all about like, it, it's all about like intellectual honesty, lack of ego. Like a lot of the things that Bridgewater talks about, funnily enough, like in terms of how they run their firm, but yet uh, like companies don't really talk about or do things that way. But like, if you were to model a company based off how Bridgewater models their company, it would be more like a Danaher, right? It would be like, we have open conversations from top levels down to junior levels. Everyone's held accountable to their numbers. Everyone has their K, you know, the core KPIs. And if they start to sour, you're held responsible. And so, and then, so I, I find that companies that are very radically honest with themselves tend to produce those flexible cultures. But it's also why, why that's important because people would say, oh no, sticking to your values is just as important as being flexible. I, again, I think maybe, but what gives me more conviction that it pays to be flexible rather than rigid is if you look at, and I found his, his work to be super influential to me more recently, even though I was kind of doing it on my own, but, but uh, is this guy Brad Singerland at uh, NZS Capital, non-zero sum capital. I don't know. You should look him up. He posts on, he's on Twitter. I find his stuff insanely uh, influential and extremely smart. And he talks about non-zero sum outcomes. Mm. It gets a little esoteric for me. I, I don't think you need to push it that far. His main key insight, which ties into Nassim Tlaib, is that the market operates on power laws as opposed to on a normal curve. So if things right. operate on a normal curve, you want to bet on below average things becoming average or above average things becoming average, which is what a lot of people do. But if you believe in power laws, you want to bet on winners becoming mega winners or losers going zero, right? You want to bet on, you know, those key inflection points happening faster than people can think they can happen. And so if I think about what power laws also mean is they also mean you want to operate on an incrementalism or on a Pareto principle type way of thinking. So a power law could be every year I spend 20% more of my time working out. So that doesn't mean, oh, you know, I, uh, I work out uh, two hours every week this year and I just keep doing that every year and I'm going to get in shape and I'm going to keep getting better because eventually you're going to plateau. But if you keep saying, okay, I'll do 20 minutes a week, a ridiculously low number. And then next week I'll do 24 minutes. And then next week I'll do a half hour. And then, you know what I mean? That yeah. snowballing of your effort and your time and the incrementalism of that. By the end of the year, suddenly you're spending, you know, you know, whatever, eight hours or 12 hours a, a week working out and you're in insanely good shape as opposed to the linear thinking. 
So I think back to flexible versus rigid, good companies versus bad, good management teams. The good management teams, one of the best things I've ever heard from a management team is when you ask them, you know, when are you perfect? Or said differently, you always ask, when is good good enough? Or like when, and they just, they look at you, they stare you in the face and they're like, what kind of question is that? Like when, when can good be good enough? Like the second I say that I'm fired, like that's the good CEOs, the good management teams, they just view this as a continuous journey of continuous improvement. And that became a buzzword, but it is really true that like, you know, if you think the world happens in power laws, if Microsoft and Apple can go from being a hundred billion dollar companies to over a trillion and, you know, trillion dollar market caps used to not even be considered possible. And now we have, you know, three or four of them and like that sort of exponential thinking, how do you, you yourself become exponentially better is thinking, you know, Pareto 20% better or whatever the number is, have a system to constantly get better back to Roper. Roper has one of the highest, you know, cash ROICs in the market. How, if you were thinking about how can we possibly get better, they might be better off trying to invest for growth. But when you ask them, you know, why don't you do that? They say, look, CRI is what drives value for us. We've identified it. And we just want our CRI to get better with every deal we do. That's the only way they judge a deal. Does the CRI of the overall company get better pound for pound every deal they do? That's it. So their, their entire capital allocation system is designed around incremental Pareto principle type thinking incrementally better every step you take. And that's rare. And almost no companies out there think that consistently mm-hmm. incrementally better. Wow. Well, that might actually be a pretty good place to end the uh, interview. I know you got a meeting, you got meetings to run to soon. So I want to give you enough time for that, but mode six cap. Thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing your wisdom uh, with myself and my listeners. And it's just a really fun chat at a very timely time moment in the financial history <laughs> yeah thanks for it definitely is we're living through history and yeah and thanks for having me again yeah no worries and uh thanks for coming on and take care all right thank you for listening to the podcast i hope the story was inspiring to you it hopefully it also helped you expand your perspectives hopefully it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different maybe, challenging yourself, being courageous. Who knows? But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com and go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content. But at the same time, also donate and donate by actually just buying me a coffee that's just how i put it and you can buy me a coffee a month coffee a week or coffee every day of the year and think about it as the way that you know if you wanted to chat with me you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat you might buy them a coffee so i'm 
just think of it as I'm the service that's doing that for you. So you can just pay me in coffees. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, everything will still be free. It's just, it would just really help if you would like to show your support this way so that I can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at, and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this is, isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further so your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute and so yeah just check out the website go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder all right thank you